Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Site Podcast Network. Myself, your host, Silas Martin. My co-host is always Christian Reynolds. Where today, um, we're not really going to be talking about this UFC card because it's bad. I don't know. When, when we started this show, I remember on the first episode, I built this podcast as a show we're going to be breaking down all of the stupid bad fights that nobody cares about. I feel like one of the UFC matchmakers heard that and was like, okay, what about this? If the UFC is just not even going to try with these cards, I'm just, I'm just going to talk about stuff that's interesting to me because this, this is my show. And um, like Justin Rosenstruck is just like one of the least interesting fighters in the UFC to me. And it's just like, you know, you just, you get, you get a, kind of tepid knockout once every three or four fights and apparently you're exciting at a main event fighter. And just like I was just an example of the the stupid way that the UFC approaches like who they can put in main events and this like trickle down effect that they seem to have with it where Rosenstruck was in a main event because he was a short notice, short notice replacement to fight Alistair Overeem. And he looked absolutely miserable in that fight and then won in a stupid way in the last five seconds. And somehow that's just kept him in main events to the point where he can be the A-side for a main event against Augusto Sakai, which was absolutely dreadful. Uh, now he's fighting Volkov. I mean, you know, yeah, we got a main event with two heavyweights coming off of a loss. This is fantastic. Um... 
and just like as if what we do on this show wasn't already just like profoundly fucking pointless. This is a fight that just makes our job completely redundant because the, the dynamic is just so tediously obvious. It was, and what I would really like to happen and what should happen is for Volkov to just pick Rosenstruck apart with jabs and front kicks and just win at a medium pace and for Rosenstruck to not come up with any ideas because he's kind of small and doesn't impose a takedown threat and doesn't have uh, proactive ideas about creating counter opportunities. So I should hope that he loses a really boring decision that everybody hates. Um, but now I'm going to sadness hedge and say that he's going to knock Volkov out because it'd be stupid and annoying and Volkov's not looked very good recently and I've already spent way too long analysing this fight. What do you think, Christian? Yeah, you know, in the end, you kind of swayed me and now I think I'm not going to pick Volkov by being tall because Volkov by being tall is how I tend to pick most of his fights. But, you know, Rosenstruck, he, he doesn't like fighting someone that just has range on him. But Volkov has looked like pretty dire moving backwards for his last like four fights. So I I don't know. I kind of just think Rosenstruck is gonna like find opportunities to land like inside low kicks into an overhand or something. Yeah, if it was like three years ago in three rounds, I would pick Volkov like no question. Yeah, and uh, Rosenstruck just doesn't exert himself enough to tire himself over five. <laughs> No, that's why he carries his power. Yeah, but Volkov will will throw enough to get himself tired, and he's he's not a light hitter. You know, he's six foot seven and heavyweight, but he's not like a hitter hitter. So I'm not too worried about Rosenstruck's chin getting busted up. Oh my god, we're doing it! Why why are we talking about the fight? This is dumb. Because exactly, this is exactly what I didn't want to do. Fuck, Danny Gamos versus Mo- Why isn't this the main event? What the fuck? What, what, like, who, wh- <laughs> what is going to happen in a fourth and fifth round between Volkov and Rosenstruck that's going to be interesting and worth it? Like, if it hasn't ended by a knockout by then, wh- wh- who, who needs to see those rounds? Danny Gay and Marv Sarevlov both have five round experience. Danny Gay has gone five rounds with two elite featherweights in the UFC where he made no okay account of himself, and Evlov has five round experience as a champion in M1. Unless just somebody's management didn't want it, I can't f- possibly fathom why they would put two mid-heavyweights coming off of losses over this fight as the main event. But, um, uh, I don't know. I think everyone's going to pick Mosar Evloev because they don't think Danny Gay is very good and then he's going to do way better than everyone thinks, but maybe not still win. What do you think, Christian? I think if it was five rounds, I would pick Ige really confidently just because he... Like his pace kind of diminishes he's a lot dangerous. slower. Yeah, and he's dangerous. Like I think he hits harder in moments than Evlov does. Like Evlov's generally a harder hitter. Like his jab is so loud whenever it connects, but he's not like sparking people out. I think he's got weird power. I think you you liken him to like Dustin Poirier, but like doesn't throw the volume that Dustin Poirier does to like leverage that kind of heavy handedness. Because Danny Ige is just, he's, he's a very quick and snappy puncher and can cover a lot of distance really quickly. I don't know, like, N- N- Nick Lentz was having some success just kind of like blitzing in with like weird uppercuts and hooks and stuff against uh, Evloev. Evloev's just a fighter that, he's one of these guys that I find incredibly difficult to assess. Even though he's obviously really good, his game is built on just the, 
oh, I'm just kind of pretty good at everything and I can like leverage one area of my game over like m- most pretty good fighters in the UFC. And I just always find it difficult to trust those guys because it's like as soon as like as soon as like a, a Nick Lance archetype guy uh, meets just like a good striker who can stop a takedown, he just, just like 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 one of those guys generally just gets fucking wiped out, you know. Uh, when Evluev has kind of been like the I will wrestle Hakeem Dewodu and jab up Mike Grundy guy. Um, but I I don't know if uh, Danny Gay has like a pronounced skill like skill advantage in any singular area to like leverage that like that consistently over an entire fight. Um, I just kind of think he might just like randomly knock Marcelo Evluev out in a weird way. I'm just going to pick that. Yeah, I'm I'm concerned for Evluev mostly due to the fact that Ige handled the physicality of Mursad Bektik and Mursad Bektik gets a lot of shit but if he is a hoss like he'll he'll be able to fuck someone up if they're small and Ige is not a large featherweight but he he hung on and then managed to get the win and it was three rounds and I feel like it's a similar dynamic to this one except Evluev's just a lot cleaner in almost every regard and he doesn't break whereas you know Mursad he'll he'll break if you can just hang in there long enough so, yeah, but I do, I do find that to be kind of the biggest concern for Danny Gay in this matchup. That like, he's a decent offensive wrestler and top player, and he's gotten better, better at that over his years at AKA. Um, but when people, he does, he's not, he's not a great defensive wrestler still. And when he starts losing scrambles, he can really just get put into jujitsu mode. Even if, even if he's just like losing wrestling situations, but not. Like, 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 Calvin Cater wasn't shooting takedowns on him, but just like Danny Gay just couldn't get him down for love nor money, and then would just end up pulling guard and then just like getting beaten up from top because he couldn't finish the takedown. And um, I can see that happening a good bit against someone like Mofsari Vluev. I think the fight's kind of 50 50, just depending on how the first round goes. Because if Ige gets momentum going early, I think Evlev will be able to neutralize them in the next two. But if Evlev starts fucking him up early, then I think Ige is going to rally and win the next two. So I kind of think whoever wins the first round loses the fight. I don't know. This is this is a really hard one to call for me. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to pick uh, Evloev by decision, but like narrowly. Um, I'm going to pick Dan Ige by knockout because it might happen. And Evloev, you know, he, he has some like pretty nice ideas defensively. He he tries to have defense like built in when he's throwing, but a lot of it's pretty rote stuff like just frame off the jab and finish combinations with a hook and then pivot off of the hook. And I just feel like a wily organic counter puncher like Danny Gay is going to be able to find openings in that. Um, and even though Danny Gay is like pretty counterable himself when he's made to lead, he's kind of just like fucking immortal. Like his fight with Calvin Cater is like really funny because it's a fight with. Two uh, good counterpunchers who are really counterable in extended exchanges, who both have insane chins. So just every time they get into any kind of exchange, they both get hit really clean, really hard, but are both just absolutely fine. Um, and I can just see, I can just see like Danny Gay either blitzing across distance and just catching Evluev with a straight or hook off of a body shot that surprises him, or just, um, or just eating a shot from Evluev and, and, and coming back with something big. 
I think that's entirely fair. But he also might just get out wrestled like pretty easily. Yeah, and that's probably all we need to say about the fight because we're going to talk about it next week and we'll find out if we were right. Yeah, I mean, also, is there a chance that this is just um, uh, Danny Gay versus Gavin Tucker all over again where we're like, oh man, Danny Gay got overranked off of a couple of like overperformances and kind of a robbery over Edson Barboza. Like, like, should he really be here? I kind of think Gavin Tuck is just a consummate professional who's just going to take him to school a little bit. He just got fucking slept in like 20 seconds. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Evloeb just has a bit too good of a chin for that. It's possible. So I, I think if he does hurt Evloeb, he'll he'll recover I, like if the, I think the first round is going to get hairy for one of them. I don't think the first round is going to be particularly competitive, but I think the the later two rounds are definitely going to be competitive, but, but I, I could be wrong. Sure. Which way that's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just, so, it's so dependent on how the first round goes. Cause they both have the potential to kind of like snowball. Yeah. And Danny gay tends to come up with the right idea in fights a little too late. Happened against Josh Emmett and Korean Zombie, and it like just about nearly just didn't win him the fight. Yeah, and even in some of Vigay's wins, he stumbled upon it a little bit too late. He was just insulated by the matchup. Like he stumbled on it kind of mm-hmm. late against uh, Mursad Bektik, but I mean the fight against Bektik was still a split. Yeah, yeah, like it was it was still where, a where, hard like, fought fight know, for we, him. Mm-hmm. And, and where we saw you know a lot of the just defensive wrestling and grappling like grappling liabilities that can get him into trouble and I think you know probably the just like smart normal thing to do is to just pick Gavlov to just win like a comfortable top game decision against Danny Gay but it just it, you, I don't know da- Danny Gay like I said he he just keeps surprising me in in these matchups where everyone seems to write him off and I can't help feeling that this is just going to be one of those things again yeah, so, something tactical I want to mention is that uh, Evlov has a good jab and Ige is pretty jabbable, but Ige also has a pretty good cross counter, so that dynamic is probably going to come up a lot. Yeah, and also the fact that Ige, you know, being a smaller featherweight and you know, constantly just like blitzing across distance behind shifting combinations to like, just try and cross that reach advantage quickly, like someone who just has a stiff jab is who's just going to run him into it. That could be a real problem for him. Yeah, and the way that Ige enters also leaves him really susceptible to getting his back taken by someone that's a good shot wrestler. So I could see Evlev just kind of ducking it on the hips as Evlev or as Ige does like a shifting overhand and then just kind of take the back real quick and then enter a grappling exchange that kind of stalls out Ige's momentum. That will probably make him tentative. So like the more I talk about the fight, the yeah, more I'm kind of thinking Evlev just has like a lot of the tools to make the fight easy, but Ige also has the tools to make the fight like winnable but not easy yeah you've kind of talked me round now but i already did my like kind of controversial meme pick that no, maybe that, could happen that's so I fair gotta, i gotta stick i gotta stick with it yeah and i i do think that Iga has like a pretty good chance in this fight and i i don't think evlev uh is a 145er i think he's like very close to being small enough for 135 i i i'll have to see more of him at 145 but he just seems like a not super physical guy for the weight and if you're not super strong you're not going to be handling anyone at the top of 145 it was also just it was just concerning how many guillotines he let Nick Lentz jump on him 
Yeah. He dealt with them all just fine, but he spent so much of that fight just defending guillotines. Is there anything else on this card that's like jumping out to you? Because I'm because they they kind of like isn't for me. Yeah, there, there's some fights that are like relevant, but none that are particularly interesting to me specifically. Uh, Karolina yeah. Kowalkovich, uh, I'm always happy to see fight. Felice Herrig uh, does her best. I'll give her that. And that fight could be interesting. I don't know. We'll, we'll probably talk about a good deal of these fights next week. I'm just kind of not happy to see Karolina Kowalkovich fighting at this point. She has just uh, looked just despondent in fights and not been able to get anything done. And then just the things that she's then said about the fights outside of the cage have just not sounded encouraging and not the kind of things that make me think you should carry on fighting. So I don't know. Yeah. That one's just kind of sad. And an unrelated to fight analysis, Joe Selecki and Mike Trezano are fighting on this card, but not each other. And they're a guy that I, I kind of just blend the two of them together because they're very generic. They are very generic, but they are different flavors of generic. Yeah, they're de- they're different fighters when I think about it now. But seeing them separately, I'm like, oh wait, these are different people. Yeah, because Mike Trezano is kind of like uh, like mid American uh, Muay Thai kickboxer dude, whereas Joe Selecki Joe is like is like wrestle boxer submission dude. But they're both just like generic MMA white dudes and. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I just hadn't really thought about it before. Oh, and then uh, a fight that's actually like, like kind of interesting to me is Damon Jackson versus Daniel Argetta, because Argetta is pretty small, and I think this has a lot of potential to make Damon Jackson look really good. But Damon Jackson also, he's he's beatable, and Daniel Argetta could surprise me. And I haven't watched him fight in a while. Oh, and, and then uh, Aaron Blanchfield's fighting J.J. Aldridge. That has potential to be a good fight, but I don't expect to be high pace. I expect it to be okay at best. Could be wrong, though. Hopefully it's really good. Uh, I like J.J. Aldridge as uh, the underwhelming technician boxer of the division. Uh, I'm just not particularly sold on Aaron Blanchfield as like the savior of women's flyweight. She she's not athletic enough to to be mm. a force yet. No. I, I think in the next few years she could kind of come along and be really good. But for now, she I think this is a very winnable matchup for Aaron Blanchfield and like a decent level test. Uh probably. Um, yeah, we've talked about this card too much. Um, I want to talk about Tao and Chai. One championship got a card this this weekend. Um, I don't really know what's going on in the undercard. A bunch of fucking one championship MMA. Who cares? But the main event, Tao and Chai is fighting. Who is like my personal favorite fighter right now. Pretty pretty much across all combat sports. Uh, he's neat as fuck. Uh, he is one of the pound for pound elite talents in Muay Thai right now. And he's just... Uh, I mean, he's just really good at everything. <laughs> he's... He's uh, mainly like a, a really slick, like outside kicker. Uh, has fantastic mechanics on everything. Like has an insanely fast lead teep that he's const- he constantly uses to interrupt uh, people's entries. And it's just like it comes out so quickly, and he is just blasting people off of their feet when they try to kick him. Great like straight punch combinations that he builds his kicks into. His left kick is 
fucking insane. It is so fast. You can land it at weird angles. And he's just kind of kind of just a a consummate all-terrain all fighter. He's a he's an absolute fucking prodigy. Like he's mostly known as an outfighter, but just because that's that that was kind of how he won a lot of his most notable uh, victories in high-level stadium fights in Muay Thai because people because like people would just uh, try to pressure the shit out of him. He'd be like, okay, I guess I got got to go on the back foot and do do some neutralizing stuff. But he knows when he needs to pressure. Like in his last fight, uh, he fought a Semipet Fairtex in one championship. He kind of kind of just like backed him up into the cage and just like tracked his movement and easily knocked him the fuck out in the first round. It was like really impressive. Oh, he's also like uh, really creative with uh, finding like sneaky elbows off of hand fights and trips uh, uh, and also finding like trips off of that and stuff as well. He has like fucking insane balance. It's like, like even though he's such an active kicker, it's really hard to put him off of balance when he's throwing kicks. Yeah, and he's fighting Bill Algio. Oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Nicholas something. What was it? Was guy's last name? Uh, Nicholas Larson. He's uh, a former uh, Glory kickboxer. Now, uh, we, I should probably start being so flippant about um, all of the like Western Muay Thai dudes who I haven't heard of and their chances against elite Muay Thai fighters because these guys keep surprising us. Uh, we didn't like really get a chance to talk post fight about. Um, uh, the last one championship card where uh, Prajan Chai uh, lost in a pretty huge upset to Joseph Lasiri and uh, Pet Morricot escaped by the fucking skin of his teeth with his, his championship intact against a uh, French standout, uh, Jimmy Vigneault. Well, he kind of just got fucking out Muay thai but dropped Vigneault and it really should have been a draw but one scoring is weird and nobody really understands how it worked and they, they gave it not allowed to have a draw. Um, but, uh, um, but, but, but a lot of the foreign guys are really actually starting to catch up catch up to the ties and just uh, tend, a lot of them are surprising them in these matchups because uh, a lot of the ties have also uh, uh, have gone to the point where, where they're just like oh it's just it's just some fucking noodly white dude. I'll just kick him really hard. This is fucking easy. And then it turns out they're like good. Like like Rod Tang had to have a an entire fight with Jonathan Haggerty where he kind of got like kicked up off the back foot for a good bit of the first one before in the second one. He was like, oh, I just like need to actually like take this guy seriously and like game plan for him. And and uh, I mean, we fucking destroyed him. Um... I kind of don't think that's going to happen this time. Nicholas Larson, he he has some cool tricks, but it just like, um, it seems like it doesn't seem like a style that's suited to fighting like actual elite Muay Thai fighters because he has a very, uh, I don't know for, for the for the MMA guys, very very Jackson Wink style of kickboxing. I would say it's very very movement heavy and trying to like set. A bunch of switch switch ups are up off of the same couple of feints from really far away and just try and get in and out. Um, not not really any defense beyond like the distance that he can keep with his footwork. Um, and his big thing is just like I'll do a right teep, and then I'll feint the right teep and like uh, shift off of it, and then and then do stuff off of the left side, and I'll. And I'll just kind of like go through a cycle of 
shit that shit that you can do off of that teep faint, which is like. I mean, this is kind of why I would liken liken it to a Jackson Wink striking style because it's like that's like a cool trick, but that shouldn't be like the foundation of your entire like striking process. I kind of think uh, Tao and Chai is just gonna like figure that out pretty easily and just like knock him the fuck out, and also just like uh, teep him and kick him really fucking hard while he's trying like trying to set up with the teep feints, and Tao and Chai just be like, okay, I'm just gonna throw like an actual kick and just like put you really out of position uh, while, while you're on one leg trying to set up stupid shit that I'm not worried about. Yeah, watching Dave on Nicholas Larson, it seemed like, uh, like my in- initial impression after watching like 30 seconds was, oh, Tom is going to figure this guy out and finish him probably in the second. And then the more I watched, I kind of think Tom Chai might need less time than that. Like I, th- I think he'll just probably come in ready for him immediately. Yeah, he did kind of annoy Buakau in the first round. By just being weird and like not a style that you that a Muay Thai fighter is particularly used to fighting. Um, but it, I think it was particularly once Burkow like pretty quickly keyed into the fact that uh, Larson just doesn't have just well, it was like I was saying earlier, he doesn't really have very like much defense beyond his footwork. And if you can just push him back and put combinations together, he has a really static high guard that can be worked around pretty easily. I'm just kind of easily dusted him in the second round after just kind of having a slightly weird first round. Um, and I would just kind of assume the same thing. Like Tao and Chai, he's had a lot of fights, but he's absolutely in his athletic prime and just getting more jacked. Uh, he's still 23 and has um, had... He has a style that has just kind of protected him from taking serious amounts of damage uh, in his, uh, to this point in his career, despite having so many fights. Like, I do think it's these kind of outfighting defensive specialists that will go on to have the longer careers in stadium Muay Thai, or, 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 just, or just in Muay Thai in general. Um, you, you know, guys like Sanchai and Nono have had significantly more longevity than... Uh, a guy like Mwang Tai who is just constantly getting to in, into insane brawls at, at an elite level. So, like, I think Tao and Chai would have to just, like, significantly underestimate Larson and kind of just fuck around. Uh, to, 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 uh, like, uh, it, it seems like he'd have to fuck this one up pretty bad, right? Yeah, Larson L-steps and V-steps way too much. I, I kind of can't see... I, I just trust Talon Chai to be able to handle a guy who's as rote with his footwork and, and just going to consistently, you know, feint a jab, then L-step, and then circle off the same direction over and over. Like, he'll probably eat body kicks on exits. Probably going to get low kicked. It, it, it's really... I, f- I feel like this is going a, a fight that's really going to illustrate the whole uh, Muay Thai fighters don't have footwork meme because I can just see Larson... Yeah, bouncing around, like you say, doing a ton of L-steps and shit like this. And uh, Tao and Chai just being really economical with small adjustment steps that are constantly putting him in good positions to both defend and counter back with hard offense. He's just going to be fucking kicking Larson really hard while he's like mid-air. And it's just, it's, it's, I, I can't see this fight going well for Larson. Yeah, so what round are you picking Tao and Chai to finish him in? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say second. I'm gonna say first. Nice. I like that energy. And then we're both gonna be wrong, and Tao Chai is going to get broken in the corner. 
I mean, I mean, we. <laughs> I, I I don't know if we we've ever been this confident about a pick. Like this is this genuinely isn't a particularly interesting matchup. I just like wanted to talk about Townshire because he's fucking cool. If you haven't seen him, you should watch him because he's he, he's just a fucking joy to watch. Everything he does is just so aesthetic and perfect, and he's hot. Yeah, which matters more than anything else mentioned. And also is the best base for uh, being good at kickboxing, as we know. Yeah, and and then in other news, we we gotta talk about karate combat. Oh, yeah. Uh, we gotta pull one out real quick for our boy Edgar Screevers. Uh, lost his karate combat lightweight championship. First loss in karate combat. Yeah, and a rematch to uh the guy who he beat for the inaugural championship, uh, Luis Hocha. And now they each and, have a finish um, over each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this fight was a classic example of the tough, gritty guy trying to drag the explosive guy into deep waters and conceding initiative in the early rounds and uh, just being a step behind and getting fucked up for it. Pretty much, yep. Uh, I, I, I think that Screamers had good ideas, and had he not gotten knocked out for a, he he had a weird read where he seemed to think that the right hook was way more there than it was because he kept pulling out of the way of Hocha's left hook and then going for a right hook, which just wasn't there, and Hocha just had to like kind of do very minimal adjusting to find the left hook there, and then he buzzed him real hard and then started fucking him up on the ground a little bit. I think one of the hardest shots Screevers actually got hit with in the entire fight was a ground and pound shot right after he got dropped. And then when he got up, he kind of wasn't fully on his feet and Hocha just had to keep framing with his right and throwing left hooks. And then eventually he got uh, Screevers leaning back, trying to do another counter right hand or right overhook and just fucking cracked him with left hook and killed him. Yeah, this is a fight that demonstrated just how weird the the hook rule is in karate combat because I, I don't really so is it short hooks that they don't allow yeah they don't allow short hooks yeah because all the karate guys would just be getting absolutely binked on ex- exits every single time so I had to use the word binked because I was possessed by the spirit of Robin Black yeah and in his cat eye makeup uh, looking I- like fucking Alice Cooper's mum out here and and I think also if if tight hooks were allowed, it would just be disincentivizing blitzing too much. Yeah, and they can't do that because it's karate combat. Um, but it was just funny to see in the the finishing sequence, Luis Hocha, Hocha being like, "I want to do left hooks, but I want to definitely make sure they don't try and fuck with this result." So he was like framing to get these like crazy long looping left hooks. It was it was it was, it was neat. He got the job done. And I think Screevers maybe like really keyed into Ahocha being like the body kick guy because that's that's been like his his finishing move uh, in, in karate combat. This is that that big open side body kick. So I think he was just like I'm gonna like stay in his face and do high guard, and when he throws the throws the kick, I'll like uh, try and either counter with a hook or just. I get a trip off of it to get some ground and pound off and try and wear on, on him and like hope that, hope that that'll like be able to capitalize on, on that in the later rounds and be the fresher fighter and uh, like I said just just uh, yeah yeah he, he, he was a step behind got, got, got beaten to the punch 
Yeah, Screevers was talking in the pre-fight how you know he's he's been at like thirty percent, forty percent for all these fights, and he's like, "How? Hey, you guys need to like bring if you want Harpson out of me, you got to bring it out of me." But the issue with going so light and and kind of letting your opponent set the pace, even if you think you're much better than them, is that sometimes you are not as much better than them as you think you are, or they will have like some physicality thing that you weren't expecting. Like in this context, Hocha's fucking explosive and got a lot larger since their last fight and, and kind of grew into the weight better. Hocha's very athletic. Yeah, so Screavers was sitting there thinking, oh, well, I finished this guy with body shots before, so, but he was disregarding the fact that the guy's abs doubled in size and you now is like fucking body armor. And also the guy now hits harder. So he, he couldn't fight the same type of fight he tried to fight last time. And he came in with good adjustments that just weren't enough. And he, he's, he came out too light. He needed to really put it on Hocha from the beginning. Because Hocha's not infallible to going backwards, you know? Yeah, like, I, I don't really get why Screavers didn't think he was going to have to take the guys more seriously. And it's it's not to take anything away from Hocha's performance. Hocha came out there and, like, did his job fully. It just felt like Screavers had a bit of an underperformance. Uh, and, and was, he, like, he had good ideas and he seemed dialed into certain counters he like he definitely prepared i just don't think he prepared as intelligently as you would hope for someone at, at his level i say his level but like you know he, he's the karate combat or was the karate combat champion that should be high enough level to where he should kind of know you can't just rely on a body kick high guard and a r- counter right hook to to win a title fight like the, it, it was it was weak by screamers to to not kind of know how to navigate uh the the physicality difference that was present in this fight compared to their first fight because it's still a winnable fight like i'm excited for the third uh, the third fight it's definitely going to be very interesting it but, should make for a great trilogy yeah but i'm uh, i'm also not that sure that i saw anything from scrapers that makes me think this same result couldn't happen again because you know hocha also made some nice adjustments like he just had to find a way around the high guard and it t- tended to be uh, hit his high guard and then hit it again really quickly before he can get his hands back in position. Because the thing about a high guard is if your opponent hits really fucking hard, they can just move your hands out of the way with clubbing shots and then find openings throughout it. You you really gotta like mind your shit if you're gonna try and play that type of game that Screavers does. And Screavers is a little too upright. They they were even giving him shit like on the commentary for it. They were like, hey, maybe like duck a little bit sometimes. Stop leaning back and standing straight up, which is you know that was definitely an issue and in case you're wondering why we didn't mention the other two fights on the card they were not good this was one of the weaker karate combat events i've ever seen it was only three fights and then two of them sucked and the third one was a finish so the the screevers Oja fight very good you should definitely watch it uh but the other two did not matter remember if you guys enjoyed this content and the other stuff the fight site does and consider supporting us on Patreon. 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 You got all the shit you need. MMA, boxing, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu. Whatever the fuck you guys need. High quality analysis from all of your favorite analysts like Ed and Ben and many more. For just $3 a month you get access to a library of like 200 videos breaking down fights and other stuff. From there you get a whole list of tiers including a Discord server full of the chadliest chads on the internet, fucking content requests, scouting reports, instructionals, well, whatever the fuck you guys want. Support us on Patreon. Fight side, fight side, fight side. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. Okay, so because I like desperately wanted to avoid uh, talking about Josina Rosenstruck, and and then we 
but still ended up doing it for some reason. Um, I asked the patrons if they had any like topic ideas, like any broader like meta discussions about MMA they wanted us to get into on the podcast because that's not really something that we've done so far. We've just been covering the absolutely relentless UFC schedule week to week. Um, and we had a question from good buddy of the podcast, uh, Rafael Trez Anjos, which was about uh, what fighters we think uh, could switch weight class and would be better suited to a different weight class than the one that they're currently competing in. And this was a question uh, kind of spurred by the recent fight between uh, Gilton Almeida and Parker Porter, which was uh, like a short notice fight put together because I guess Gilton Almeida just wanted to stay busy. And it was a fight where people were kind of concerned about it because Gilton Almeida's... uh, a prospect that people are pretty excited about at light heavyweight and people think are probably going to, is probably going to go on to do big things. And it seemed like a bit of a risk taking a short notice fight against a random heavyweight that nobody really knows, but that could end up being kind of difficult for him because Charlton I made is not even, I mean, he's absolutely jacked, but he's not actually the biggest light heavyweight. And, you know, some people were concerned, man, is he going to go up and find out that some people are just too fucking heavy? And, I mean, shout and I made a weight in, I think, 224 pounds. And Parker Porter was at 265 at the heavyweight limit. So you got to think was over 270. And Almeida kind of, like, handled him pretty easily. There was, like, a small amount of time where he was, like, struggling with the takedown. Where if where it's like, okay, is this going to be an issue? And it just wasn't. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Parker Porter's not a light dude, but he's, if he carries on at heavyweight, he's going to have to fight. Uh, he's, he, you know, eventually he's going to have to fight some, just some better wrestlers than Parker Porter. I mean, a kind of, I guess. I mean, like, just imagine fighting like Marcin Tybura. Um, yeah, here's the thing. I think Charles Almeida, particularly as an example here, would be basically fine until he got to like Curtis Blades, right? I think he'd he would have troubles with some of the doughier heavyweights that are would just be like two fifty. Like I think Marcin Tiberi would be be tough for him. I think Tanner Bowser would be really tough for him. You think Tanner Bowser would be tough for Francis Ngannou? True, and he would be. Um. But anyway, I, 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 like just approaching this uh, like kind of broader quick because I, I I tend to agree that um with Trezandros in this uh, situation that I think Jonathan Almeida should probably just go back down to light heavyweight because his game in particular is um more of a like physical strength imposing one than it is one that leverages a particular speed edge. Even though like speed definitely helps because he's one of these like. Uh, do high kick to stand you up into doing a big explosive shot takedown kind of guys. So he definitely has, you, you know, the speed definitely helps as a wrestler. It's not as cut and dry as, you know, a lot of people just kind of say, if, uh, if you want to do wrestling, you should be as big as possible. And if you want to do striking, then you should, just like be fast, which like yeah, kind of. 
Um, yeah, it's just not as it's not as black and white as that. No, there's a lot more nuance to it than that, particularly because like in MMA, there's just not that many weight classes. You got increments and, and there's big gaps between weight classes where you've got increments of 10 pounds going up to lightweight, then 15 pounds for the next couple of divisions, and then you know, mid, mid, middleweight up to light heavyweight is 20 pounds, and then you just and then you're just in heavyweight. So like the thing about weight cutting is like everybody hates it. But like it's just like inevitably everyone's going to have to cut like some amount of weight just to find a weight class that everybody has to kind of find that suits them depending on their physicality and what their game is and how both of those things kind of match up with the landscape of the divisions that they can potentially compete in. So like, that's why I kind of found this a hard question because like it's not really my place to say that somebody should be moving weight if like... You know, I look at a guy like Jalen Turner, who's like six foot three and fast and athletic and having a lot of success at lightweight in the minute. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm enjoying watching him. And I think he's really good. But I'm like, why don't you just fight a welterweight? Because it's a bad division and you'd still be fucking huge. And I think the answer is most fighters think they're going to be champion and, or at least like want to aspire to be champion. And it's really easy for me sitting here making a fucking podcast like a stupid little bitch to say, well, Jalen Turner's probably not going to be champion at lightweight or welterweight. So, like, what? why not just be in the worst division? <laughs> um, you know, fighters don't think like that, and I don't expect them to. But in a way, I think the culture is, like, developing beyond the um, just cut as much weight as possible. Everyone needs to be fucking huge kind of culture. You know, we're seeing a lot of fighters in recent years just go up in weight and suddenly have way more success. And in a lot of these cases, it turns out these fighters have just been like absolutely fucking bonsaiing themselves, trying to make a lower weight division where Michael Chiesa moves up from light lightweight to welterweight and he looks like a fucking light heavyweight. Um, but at the same time, uh, the insane bro science of cutting sickening amounts of weight has like just somehow gotten more consistent in ways that I don't understand in, in, in that like Jose Aldo used to be a huge featherweight who struggled to make featherweight and I was incredibly concerned when I heard that he was moving down to bantamweight and now he's at bantamweight and he's just fine he's like a top five bantamweight in the world and still looks really good and isn't even a particularly big bantamweight and like the, the bantamweights now like would have been Lightweights 10 years ago and the featherweights would have been welterweights. It's fucking, these people are fucking huge. Um, so I don't know. Like I say, everyone's just got to find the division that works for them because the other issue is that just uh, even if you want to be one of the guys who's just like, nah, I don't cut weight, like this weight cutting has reached this fucking stupid dichotomy where um, everyone was cutting shitloads of weight to... Uh, get an advantage so everyone had to keep up and now just everyone does it and nobody has an advantage but it's just a thing that you got to do if you even want to like be able to compete so I don't know people got to figure out what works for them that being said Christian is there any fighters who you think uh, could just potentially have dramatically more success if they were to move weight class or is there, or is there anything you want to add to that just absolute just rambling bollocks uh, before we get into specific case studies. Well, something that's strange about uh, 
like the question of who should go up or down is that at lower weight classes, pretty much all of them should kind of just stay in the weight they are because up or down is so dramatically different. Whereas once you're at about 170, most of the fighters at 170 in the top 15 would do all right at 185. And then at 185, like most of them would do fine at light heavyweight or 170 if they could make it. Like we'll get to the cases, but just like on a broad scale, if I look at the flyweight division, I can't see anyone there that would be large enough to like handle themselves at the top of 135 reasonably. And there isn't anyone I think would do better there. I think there's some that could handle themselves there. That's that's a funny one because I remember when um, Alex Perez had to drop out of his last fight with that was booked with Match Now because of the weight cut issue. Um, Michael Chiesa was saying, "Man, I see Alex Perez like every time on fight week. He's just having a miserable time. He's just like he has. He he really struggles to make this weight. I think he just needs to go up. You know, when I moved up in weight, it really did wonders for me. And I'm like, you know what, Michael Chiesa, that's easy for you to say because you went up from a lightweight, which is a very good division, to welterweight, uh, which is bad. Uh, also like also where your style like works more. Whereas Alex Perez." would go from being a title contender at 125 to, I'm sorry, Alex Perez is a good fighter. He's a good athlete. He would like, and there's certain things about his game that might open up a bantamweight, but bantamweight is a fucking nightmare of a division compared to flyweight. That that is absurd. (laughs) Yeah, and bantamweight has a similar thing to, to flyweight where I can see fighters that would do all right at featherweight or do all right at flyweight, but I can't see a single person who would do better because at a, an elite level, and the better a division gets, the the like broader the division is going to be. So 135, everyone in the top 15 is a natural 135er and should be there right now. Or maybe if they weren't always a natural 135er, like Aldo, he it definitely is now. Like he 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 is a 135er. And then like Corey Sandhagen's very large, but at 145 he would be outgunned by many people in the division, and I think he would kind of get tooled by like the people in the top three or four and then he'd be just way too large to go to 125 so there's there's like rob font he would do all right against certain people in the top 10 of featherweight but his his ceiling's a lot lower i do think that that, that's another case that's kind of interesting is like people who you look at and you have to assume they're just gonna have to go up in weight eventually do you think Corey Sandhagen's going to be a bantamweight when he's like in his 30s? I can't imagine it, really. Uh, it's strange. Or like, or like uh, Hamzat Shemaev. How long can he stay at welterweight? And how long does he want to stay at welterweight? Because um, I think certain things about the Gilbert Burns fight make me think that he would just have a lot more success at middleweight. I think, obviously, he's a huge, powerful guy, but he's also a great speed athlete. I think he can leverage that more against the bigger slower guys but also the guys in the division that where the just the level of wrestling is significantly weaker and he still has the strength to impose that game against the people that he needs to at that division so i don't know why he's killing himself to make welterweight and i don't know how long he can realistically do that for again maybe it's just one of these things where he thinks kamara usman is an easier fight than israel adesanya which fair or he thinks he might have to fight Robert Whitaker at 185, which would be rough. But I don't, I don't want to say winnable for Hamzat. But uh, uh. that that fight is ultimately like winnable for Kamaev. I think at this point, especially if Kamaev continues to get better. 
and and yeah. Rob can if Rob starts to like really decline because I, I don't think he looked declined in the Izzy fight. I thought it was just like a not great performance by him. They looked a little timid. But if so you get like a timid, difficult, like hand, having trouble with range version of Rob, I could see Gamayev getting a lot of opportunities. And that's like his hardest matchup in the division, right? Yep. You that know? that or like Jared Cannonier, just on on size yeah. and first layer takedown defense. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh fuck! Where do we want to go from here? I, don't, I like uh, just going like not for the entire thing, but division by like. Looking at featherweight, I can see Max Holloway would do one at he'd do really good at one fifty five, but I think he could be the champion at either weight, depending on how the matchups shake out or just or how how he is on the night. But I I wouldn't say he should go to one fifty five. No, and it's also another case where I think if Max Holloway wants to have serious serious success at one fifty five, then he has to commit to being at one fifty five. Because when he fought Dustin Poirier at 155, as much as that was a fantastic performance on, in all ways from Dustin Poirier, it was a great fight. It was just a significant factor that it was a guy who had filled out as a lightweight and had experience fighting lightweights compared to a featherweight going up for a fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you can't half commit to going up a weight class and have the full success because Max is large enough to where he could definitely, I could see him having a, a Charles Oliveira type thing where once he goes up to lightweight, he gets even larger. But you know, it, it was it was the equivalent of when Charles went back up to one fifty five and fought Will Brooks. He fucked up Will Brooks really easily. But then his next fight, he fought Paul Felder, who has just been fighting at one fifty five for a while and looked very physical uh, comparatively. Even though Charles was having good success, he just eventually got lightweighted as a featherweight and then as his win streak started building up he got more and more confident as a lightweight and that's something that you you really need is just it's always an issue when someone's at the top and then goes up to another weight class and has to immediately start fighting the top guys at another weight class because it's normally just not going to work out for your first few fights like you you got to adjust to the weight class so fighting lower competition when you go up is normally very smart and that's kind of what michael kessa did whereas you look at like Michael Kessin and uh, talking about Alex Perez, if Alex Perez went up to 135, he'd probably fight someone like really good in his first fight. Like he, he might fight Song Yadong or, or fucking Ricky Simone. Those are, are incredibly Both difficult fights. Hideous matchups. Yeah. Like, like those are, they're larger than him and they have the grappling chops to, to kind of mitigate his a game. And then on the feet, he's probably not going to have any advantage at all. And that goes for a lot of people at many weight classes. And then as you go up, you look at welterweights, top 15, and a good half of them would do just as good at 185, uh, if not better. And then you look at 185, and it's kind of the same. Yeah, so like Kevin Holland. Why did Kevin Holland go down to welterweight? Like, what's the point? He's already fought the like two best wrestlers at middleweight, literally. Why has he now gone down to welterweight where the level of wrestling is higher and now he's got to like make more effort to cut weight and has presumably lost some of the snappy speed edge that he was able to maintain at middleweight? Uh, Maybe think, he just like felt like he was getting out-muscled? I think but- that's exactly it. I think he thinks, incorrectly in my opinion, I think he should be at 185 for the reasons you laid out of he's already fought the two best wrestlers, so like, what is there to lose? He, also, he, you just like, don't rematch those two. 
And and I kind of think he's the guy who has the because here's an interesting thing as well is how uh, power translates between divisions because not everyone who like can hit hard and knock people out does that in the same way. People you know you hear people talk about this all the time. Kevin Holland he's a long snappy puncher and he's fast and even though he lost that fight against Marvin Vittori every time he touched Marvin Vittori he he like hurt him no, noticeably and this is the like absolute like head of meat like unkillable guy who like just eight head kicks from Paulo Costa and and, and fought eight rounds against Israel Adesanya and wasn't hurt a single time but Kevin Holland fought yeah. five rounds and landed about six punches, and five of them scared the fuck out of a Tory. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess we just don't have enough of a sample size to see how that works out at um, at welterweight, yeah, because he knocked out Alex Oliveira, which, like, yeah, he was going to do that. It'd be like that. But, you know, it makes me think of, like, um, you know, Edson Barboza was a guy who was like a lightweight was like cracking people with left hooks on the end of exchanges for years and like not really seeming to like do that much damage even though he seemed to be landing them really clear then he goes down to featherweight and he's a fucking nuclear puncher yeah it's 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 like impossible to assess someone's possible success at another division without just seeing it because Edson Barboza and Aldo are two people that you would expect in theory, shouldn't go down a weight because their pronounced advantages would be worse. No, when like similar to Aldo, when you heard Edson Barboza was going down to featherweight, were you not like, what the fuck? How? Yeah, I, for one, I was like, how? And two, I was like, why? Because I would expect his chin to get worse and his him to like lose his speed edge. But instead, he just gained a power edge and his chin looked fine. So it's it's very person to person specific. Because you know, let me let me look at bantamweight and find a random example. Like, what if Corey Sandhagen goes up to 145 and all of a sudden is a hitter and and then is like able to start fucking people up with his hands even better and his chin gets even better somehow and then he he just gets the ability to defend every takedown, you know? I mean, he's an, he's a pretty wacky scrambler anyway. And yeah. Like, once yeah. you get to the top end of featherweight, who's going to try and like out wrestle you that like insistently anyway? Yeah. Or, or like an extreme example. What if you know Corey Sandhagen goes up to 145, and then all of a sudden is good enough to submit Brian Ortega just because he has a, a grappling speed advantage? <laughs> okay, I mean that's, that sounds kind of wacky. Insane, but also he he fucking destroyed TJ Dillashaw's knee in like a minute into their, into their fight, and he's really good at jujitsu. And we've seen him hang in the jujitsu with everyone except Aljamain Sterling, really. And even then, you know, if Aljamain Sterling gets anyone's back, he can submit them pretty quick. Uh, it's not as much an indictment on him, and he's definitely gotten better since. Or, or you know, win a fight that way, even if he doesn't submit you. Yeah, yeah. So, but that, that's uh, just like an extreme example. Like you can see people have drastically different advantages whenever they go up or down a weight class, just out of nowhere. You- but for those reasons, a couple of people, like while we're on featherweights, a couple of people I think should go up. Shane Burgos. I think Shane Burgos is uh, like just huge and slow and plodding. And I think uh, a lot of his issues would be basically the same at lightweight. But um, I think the way I was talking about how power translates 
I think Shane Burgos is the kind of puncher who would suddenly find that he has that snappy speed edge once he goes up in weight and he isn't just like you know, clubbing people anymore. And I think he has the kind of power that could translate if he goes up in weight. Uh, another featherweight who I think could really stand to go up, Julian Arosa, who uh, noted is the undefeated champion at 150 pounds in the UFC. Um, I don't know if it's just that if he's cutting five less pounds on a short notice a catch weight, if his chin just suddenly gets way better and he doesn't randomly get knocked out in the first minute of every fight. But like, you know, like guys are six foot one featherweight. Like, and he's like, you know, I'm talking about how guys fit into the division like the landscape of a division. Julian Arosa is like kind of happily king of the journeymen anyway. Like, uh, like, like why not just go up a division where, where you're going to be fighting similar levels of competition anyway and uh, you're just going to like feel faster and better and let, let, less drained out and like presumably have better reactions and you know, the people are going to be slower than the people that you've been used to fighting for the rest of your career. You know, I, I would generally advocate for most people to go up and wait. Yeah, and and then for like a very elite example, I think Charles Oliveira's ceiling at 170 is as high as it is at 155. I'd I, pick him over Kamara Usman. I would as well. I would pick Charles over, and I am not exaggerating, every single person in the top 15 at welterweight. You may think I'm crazy, and then look at the top 15, and then reconsider. Charles has answers for each of them. This is a Chucky Olives podcast, but yeah, ne- neither here nor there. Yeah, this disregard the bias. It's 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 really hard for, to like say. You, you know, if someone's having success in their division, because it seems like the most obvious examples to say people that should be changing weight division are people who are uh, missing weight and then losing. <laughs> Like, um, I mean, Joel Alvarez missed weight and then won a bunch of fights and then barely made weight and then got absolutely destroyed by a not particularly big lightweight. And it's like, maybe you don't need to be big. Maybe you need to be good at fighting and you're clearly a welterweight. But then on the other hand, you know, Jalen Turner looks like a fucking middleweight, but I'm like, dude, if you can make 155, do your thing, man. Like, good for you. And in divisional meta, which we haven't gotten that much into, is like... Joel Alvarez is a striker at 155, and that kind of makes sense as to why he wants to be there because he'd be striking with people. And at 170, he's probably going to have to fight a good deal of wrestlers or strikers that have reach parity or close to. So, you know, just divisional meta wise, it's not as ideal for him. But also, if he's not killing himself to make weight, he'll probably improve more. So it's 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 hard to gauge. And there's a few fighters like that. Like if you're at 145. And you're like a good consummate all-rounder that can handle anyone. If you go up to 155, you're going to be fighting a bunch of specialist strikers or specialist grapplers. Because that's most of what's in the top 15. With like a few exceptions. And then if you're at 170 and you go up to 185, you're going to be going from a division where you're used to fighting a bunch of wrestlers. To to fighting mostly strikers. And then for 185, you go up to 205. There's like a few... And I'm not just boiling it all down to striker versus grappler. There's definitely a lot more nuance to it for each one. But generally, the the meta kind of trends a certain way in each of them. Yeah, and and 
and and I guess that is a thing that you got to take into account. I, I, again, just like I keep saying, how how your style fits into a divisional meta. Yeah. Because um, what the fuck was Dan Hooker doing going back down to one forty five? I I have no fucking clue what he was thinking. Makes no sense to me. Uh, he has a knockout win over current like top five and recent title challenger at welterweight Gilbert Burns. Um, and he he's not a quick lightweight, and he's not an all rounder. And at what point of any of his problems in the fights that he he's lost in lightweight come down to getting bigged? Not like he lost Islam because he's not a good wrestler, and and he lost and Islam's like really good at that yeah. specifically. And and he lost to Dustin Poirier because Dustin Poirier is a better brawler that that has is as durable or more. Yeah, Dan Hooker had, Dan Hooker had no choice but to get into a war with Dustin Poirier, but he kind of did all right, but still lost because he had to fight Dustin Poirier's fight, and he just got decked by Michael Chandler, who's just like really fast and just like came out with with, with a good game plan and pressured the shit out of him. And he was scared shitless of the wrestling threat coming back to. Oh, and also part of him losing the Dustin fight was him getting wrestled by one of the worst offensive wrestlers in the, the top ten. But so. in the late rounds, in a fight where he'd already like been broken, yeah. So yeah. It's, so it's like you know you know the the only times he that he's lost fights because of wrestling have been a fight where he'd already been shit kicked and on the feet and couldn't sustain the fight anyway. And um, like one of the best grapplers in the like, second best grappler in the division right now. Yeah. So like, and, and then uh, got, he got knocked so like, out so, by the fastest or like traditionally maybe one of the biggest hitters in MMA history in Michael Chandler. Yeah, and then he goes down to featherweight and gets knocked out by noted knockout artist Arnold Allen. Yeah, dude, Arnold Allen out here just sparking people left and right. Dude, just just go up, just go up, and like uh, Ilya Teporia was a guy that we was we were saying when we were seeing his run at featherweight, being like, maybe he should like be a bantamweight. He goes up to lightweight, and he's just fine. You know? Yeah, he seems kind of content to handle being the shorter guy at lightweight whereas you know you would assume oh he's a a great all-rounder him at 135 would be completely fair to be there but at 155 it kind of makes sense because he seems to hit even harder at lightweight and he gets under people's punches a lot easier it's almost an advantage that he's so much shorter his style works well if he has like four inches height difference between his opponents and he kind of wouldn't even benefit that much from being the same size as bantamweights yeah, he still has insane physicality that can carry him in that division. Yeah, like he's not at a, a strength disadvantage against almost anyone in his immediate vicinity at lightweight. And he's a big enough hitter that's skilled enough and, and his style kind of trends in a way that allows him to get a lot of wins. So that one, like like I was saying earlier, like it, it really just comes out of nowhere when someone's really good up a weight class. Like Michael Chiesa, you could expect he would do better at 170 just because of how... Uh, his frame looked, but you could not have guessed that he would have become that large. It, it was impossible to assume that. Jake Matthews got taller when he went up in weight. Yeah, it went from being five eight in his like his first UFC fight to five eleven at some point. Guy legit grew. 
Oh, and then there, there's we haven't even brought up the 185ers that have gone up and become elite randomly at 205. Mostly just because. Oh my like, god, I didn't even think of that. Mostly Which just like divisional um, meta and level of competition changes. Yeah, because I mean, there's a, there's a definite like weird divisional meta thing going on there where uh, Anthony Smith and Tiago Santos go up in a way and are like instant title challengers, and fucking Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold see that and they're like well those guys weren't good middleweights that looks fucking easy they both go up and get absolutely fucking dusted yeah um and it's and, and it's just like well yeah it's because those guys were like journeymen at middleweight and they didn't have to go through the insane career ending wars that are required to like be a champion at middleweight and like so, so they just still had enough left in the tank to just like uh, leverage the things that they had that like just opened up when they went up in weight. Yeah. And it's very difficult to assess before someone goes up why they are doing badly. So, you know, Chris Weidman thought, Oh, I'm, I'm doing bad because I'm at 185 too long. Lou Rockhold also thought, Oh, I'm just not, I'm just too big for 185 now. And that was why they thought they were doing wrong. But no, they were just getting older and their skills were regressing. Also, in Luke Rockhold's case, he uh, thought he was going to get an easy title fight and that Jan Blachowicz was a, a squash match. Yeah, Luke Rockhold being uh, a, a absolute himbo definitely contributed to that. But then you look at uh, Teo Santos and uh, Anthony Smith and you can kind of see their 185 runs the reason they were doing bad is because they were not at their correct weight class that is not the case for chris weidman and luke rockhold they were just not elite anymore they were on the downslope regardless of what weight they're at but anthony smith and jerry santos got a career rejuvenation from going up a weight and kind of showed that they should have been there all along or at least for a while so it, it's so person dependent that you really can't assess it in this way i mean there's like a few obvious examples of people that would do fine up a weight class like, like if you look at uh, light heavyweight, I can't really see a reason Jerry Prochaska wouldn't do as good at two uh, sixty five. Assuming, like, aside from the fact that he gets knocked out by Ngannou, obviously, <laughs> he might be Ngannou. Uh, I think he would win many, many seconds against Ngannou, and and then get knocked out horribly. But that that's that's off topic. In either way, that's not like an indictment for against his ability. Day, yeah, yeah, yeah the, that's for like next year whenever Jerry's trying to become double champ. Be like a pretty consistent theme throughout this is that just um, generally this isn't consistent throughout the UFC, but a lot of the time, like the division um, above is just like kind of worse. And you know there are so many examples of people who just insist on cutting stupid amounts of weight and then they just stop and they go up and they're like, oh, no, I'm just fine. Didn't need to do that. And because, you know, quite often, quite often the divisions do just like kind of get like gradually worse in skill level as you go up in weight. Which is why I'm just like, if you're like a big ass lightweight and what, and, and you can like, do fine at 170 then like 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 why bother like um if if you're like a decent women's straw weight then just go up to flyweight win two fights and get a good payday to lose to Valentina Shevchenko and then just go back down like why not yeah and if we had this topic brought up 
a little while ago before Jessica Andrade came back to 115, I would have said she needs to go back down because she could be the champion very, very possibly. Or no, I wouldn't say easily, but it's it's like definitely within grasp for her to become champion. Oh, at absolutely, absolutely. What would you, I mean? Would you pick Carla Esparza over Jessica Andrade? I uh, controversially, I would not. I I would also pick Andrade over Rosanamia as in a title fight again. I'm yep. I'm not completely yep. sold on Zhang Weili over Andrade. I think the first fight was very good by hmm. by Weili, but I think it's it's still like a winnable matchup for Andrade. Definitely. And, and you know, Yoani and Jacek's kind of out of the title picture. I mean, well, she, she's fighting Zhang Weili, but you know, she she's not as likely to just. It's unlikely that Andrade is going to have to fight Joanna for the belt at this point, unless Joanna beats Whaley and then has to fight Carla. But that's also dependent oh. on Carla beating Rose again. I mean, we, I'm, well, I don't think it is because I actually, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I'm pretty sure Dana said the winner of Ian Jacek Whaley 2 gets the next title shot over oh, okay. Rose Namit Unit. Okay. So it would be pretty sick to just see history repeat itself completely. That would be neat. Uh, I would be um, happy to see Andrade versus literally anyone at 115. But but all of that being said, and I agree with you, I prefer Andrade at 115. But before Andrade went up to 125, and you know, particularly after she um, got knocked out by Zhang Weili and lost the belt, and then you know, just about lost that rematch with Rose Namajunas, I was like, just fucking go up and wait. Easy title shot. I want to see Andrade versus Valentina, and you know, and then, and, and, and then she tried it and was just like, ah, fuck it. But 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 again, that's not like a, you know, the fact that she went back down shows that that's that that that's not even, just not even necessarily within like the topic that we're trying to explore here. That that was just like, oh, the division above me is bad, and it's an easy title shot. I'll just go do that real quick. Yeah, it was the, this is often the case when it's a consideration to go up or down in weight. Yeah, and it was the fact that Andrade, her skill floor or, or her achievement floor at one twenty five is being the number one contender, whereas her ceiling is not being champion, but her ceiling for one fifteen is being champion. So even though it's a harder division, she actually can be the champion there. So you you would assume that that's like based on what we're talking about would be her ideal division. And then if you look at women's bantamweight, really any of them would do fine at 145 and if they can make 125 they would also do fine. I mean particularly before bantamweight was just bust hilariously wide open by uh, Juliana Peña becoming champion. Um it was just like why are you even bothering to make 135 and fight through this like just weird uh, stagnant top 10? And you can just not cut weight and beat Norma Dumont and get a title shot. Like, that's stupid. So I don't know if there's any, like, actual conclusions to draw from that. I think, I mean, but we talked about some stuff. And I hope that was interesting. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. It's a very difficult topic to talk about because it it's just, it requires, like, knowing the future almost because you can't assume how anyone's going to react physically to going up or down a weight class because someone could be just dramatically better and lose lose nothing from going down a weight class or someone could uh, go down a weight class and then look like tj did against henry Zudo. 
and then someone can go up and look the best they've ever looked and look nowhere near too small for the division, look perfectly reasonably sized, or someone can go up and look completely diminutive and kind of lose to someone mid. Okay. I'm happy with that. I am too. Oh, so yeah, this has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. You can catch us next week where we're going to talk about we're going to try to talk about anything interesting that does happen this weekend, but um, most notably, we're going to be previewing uh, next weekend's UFC pay-per-view headlined by Glover Teixeira defending the light heavyweight belt against uh, Jiri Prochowska which is a fucking insane fight that I'm uh, very excited for. Also, uh, Valentina Shevchenko is fighting someone he has well, 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 Weili Zhang versus Yoannis from Jacek 2. There's some good shit going on here. Oh my god, Jack Dalamenta Lane is back. Sick. Should be a good one. We'll see you then. Peace. Later. Later.